Investing in syndications can be a daunting task. Wiring a large sum of your hard-earned money to someone you talk to on the phone for 30 minutes can certainly be scary. How can you be confident in what you are doing? Steve Sue, one of the founders of LFI, just published a book called Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor, 20 Lessons Learned from 14 Years of Passive Investing in Private Syndications. This is the best passive investing book I've read. It's easy to read. It's chock full of great advice from Steve's experience as a passive investor. Whether you're a first-time passive investor or a veteran, you can learn from these lessons. You got to read this book. Get the link to Avoiding Rookie Errors as a Left-Field Investor on our website today at www.leftfieldinvestors.com. Hey, left-fielders, you know our partner, TribeVest, the platform that makes it super easy, safe, and transparent to form a business and invest with partners. I'm in 12 tribes myself. Now, TribeVest is integrated with LFI even more. Every deal webinar has the option to join an open tribe. This means left fielders can invest at lower minimums compared to going directly with the sponsor. It's a great way to diversify and spread your risk. TribeVest handles all of the heavy lifting. All you have to do is join the open tribe. Subscribe to LFI emails and sign up for Clubhouse Access to take advantage of deal webinars and open tribes. Hi, this is Zach Hapstenstall, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200-plus full-time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48 Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at rise48equity.com backslash invest. The one time the LP does have control and does have a say is before they make the investment. And so to me, that's where your work really needs to be focused on is that due diligence piece, even before you make an investment. It all starts with the due diligence on the sponsor, him or herself. And there's nothing more important in my book to making sure that you know who the sponsor is, what their credentials are, what their track record, is this their first rodeo, and do a deep dive into that figure out their operations, figure out you know how they communicate with investors, really focusing on the sponsor more than anything. Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. I'm really excited today to have Mauricio Raul. He's the founder of the Premier Law Group and is the capital T-H-E syndication attorney for real estate syndicators. He's, he's one of the few lawyers, we like to say, who, who actually speaks English, and he works to keep his syndication clients out of jail is what he says, which I think is <laughs> fascinating. Um, he's also one of the hosts of Drunk Real Estate, which is a new podcast, along with infielder Jay Scott, and, it, and it's one of my favorites, uh, favorite podcasts now, and, and Mauricio, in case you're wondering which one he is. He's the one usually drinking a nice wine. And uh, today he's going to be talking about syndications from the perspective of the LP. So Mauricio, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks for having me, Jim. Super excited about doing the show. 
Excellent. So the first question I always ask is, tell us about your journey. You know, how did you get into syndications and real estate? I assume you were an attorney first and then you found this space. So if you can kind of just give us the uh, the quick rundown of, of how you got here. Yeah, I am an attorney, so please don't hold that against me. Um, I'm not your typical <laughs> attorney, which is uh, why uh, people refer me to as the anti-lawyer and, and and one of the few lawyers that actually speaks English. So uh, hopefully this will help out. But yeah, I mean, I started my career in the traditional uh, method. I went to law school, you know, started a great firm. I, I, that was my, my dream job of going to one of the biggest law firms dealing with securities laws. But I just found out really quickly that that was not what I wanted to do. You know, I just, just working all the time, right? You get up and go to work and work and I would work weekends and I would have to keep track of every second of my time. And it was a nightmare, even though it was an amazing place to work. And I got super, super fortunate that I came across that little purple book, right? The Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I'm sure a lot, if not most of your uh, community has heard of. And that really blew me away. Um, long story short, that led me to meet my sort of uh, get out of jail free card, which was the real estate guys. I heard uh, a drop in from the uh, from Kiyosaki on the radio, actually, back in the day when people listened to radio. Uh, it took me to the real estate guys. That really got me out of the corporate world. And I started going, it was like general counsel for these guys, the real estate guys, Robert Helms and Russell Gray. That's really where I cut my teeth on the syndication side, because up until then I was a litigator. So I was in, you know, I was doing trials and, you know, depositions and motions and stuff like that. And uh, when I moved over to the release guy, that's really when I started doing syndications. And, you know, long story short, I ended up starting my own firm from there, kept the guys as sort of my VIP clients and then grew the practice. We've been now uh, operating for almost 20 years, I want to say. I've kind of lost track, 16, 17 years now. And uh, now, our, you know, you know how it is, Jim, when you start a business, you just do whatever it takes to put food on the table, which is what I did. Uh, and then I narrowed my practice down to just syndications and also asset protection. So I am a recovering asset protection attorney. So I, I know a lot about that field. But uh, long story short, I, I ended up narrowing it down to just syndications, which is what we do today. We basically help real estate syndicators stay out of jail, as I like to joke, just making sure that when they're taking monies from LPs, they're doing so in full compliance with federal and state securities laws, not only for the benefit of the client, but also, quite frankly, for the benefit of the LPs, making sure that they're given all the information that's necessary for them to make intelligent decisions as to whether this is a good investment for them or not. Yeah, that, that's great. And, you know, real estate guys, I love those guys. That's what I, how I got into syndication was I went to the syndication seminar knowing that I was going to be a syndicator. And after about 10 minutes, I changed and thought, I'm going to be an LP. That's, that's where I, uh, that's where I belong. <laughs> I learned that pretty quickly. So I, that's awesome that that's how you got your start. So what I want to do today is kind of just dig into what LPs should be looking at, because I have to be honest, when I see a PPM and, you know, half of it is all capital letters and, and my mind just goes blank. And I think, oh my gosh, do I really have to read all of this? And so I've kind of figured out there's a few places I look. I don't read the whole thing, but then there's the <laughs> subscription agreement. There's the operating agreement. And you know, it, it's hard to know as an LP, what am I supposed to be looking at? So you know, but let's start with what are some of the biggest issues LPs need to look for when investing in syndications? And I want to get to those documents you know, next, but what are some issues and things that we need to look at besides just maybe the, you know, analyzing the deal? Yeah, look, I always tell LPs, I mean, you know, LP means limited partnership. And that literally means limited at the point where not only is their liability limited, but actually their decision making ability is limited, right? So once they're in the deal, there isn't really from a legal standpoint, much or anything that they can actually do. So they, they, they're giving up control. They're literally contributing the capital so that the sponsor, the syndicator can go do what they do. Uh, so the, the one time the LP does have control and does have a say is before they make the investment. And so to me, that's where your work begins 
really you needs to be focused on is that due diligence piece even before you make an investment. And it all starts with the due diligence on the sponsor, him or herself. And there's nothing more important in my book to making sure that you know what, who the sponsor is, what their credentials are, what their track record, is this their first rodeo, and do a deep dive into that figure out their operations, figure out, you know, how they communicate with investors, really focusing on the sponsor more than anything, because you can have a, an amazing deal that came across the desk. And if they have a crappy sponsor, they can run that deal to the ground. And conversely, you could have a, a deal that maybe is going through some tough times because of the market or, you know, things that happen, but a really good sponsor can kind of uh, keep going with that and, and pull it out of the ground. So, Questions I would be focusing on really is forget about the deal at the beginning, but assuming the investment philosophy is there too, because I always like to start with that. I'm like, is this, is this something that matches your investment philosophy? Even like if you're a cash flow investor and you're looking for, you know, investing in a, in people who do development deals probably doesn't make sense. But, uh, you know, figuring out is this somebody that can actually has the experience to pull off what they're saying? And do they have experience in this particular asset class? I mean, real estate, as you know, Jim is very broad and you can have, you know, multifamily, single family, self storage, mobile home parks, all these different things. And so is the sponsor that you're giving your hard-earned money to, do they have experience in this particular asset class? Because they might, this might be a multifamily deal and they spent their entire career in the self-storage industry, for example, like my co-host AJ Osborne on the show. Uh, you know, he's an amazing self-storage person, but does he have the expertise if he suddenly wants to do a multifamily deal? Uh, or if you're in the mobile home parks business, you know, so just making sure that you understand, uh, you know, the, the expertise of the sponsor. I think that's where it all starts, even before you even start looking at the deal or worrying about the legalese part of it. Because once you once you cut that check, that's it. You've given up from a legal standpoint, you've given up all the control. Maybe you've got a little bit of a sliver of hope there to, if, if everybody's not happy with, with the way things are going, maybe you can get a, to a point where you can vote, vote off the managers. But man, if it's one of my clients, I make it extremely difficult, if not impossible for you to remove my client because obviously they're, they're doing all the work. So I would start with the due diligence on the sponsor. Okay, that, that's fantastic. Let's, let's dive a little bit deeper in there before we get to the exciting documents <laughs> of hundreds of pages of, of um, lawyer, lawyer ease. So when you're looking at the sponsor, you mentioned experience, and I absolutely agree. And you also mentioned make sure that they're in an asset class that they're familiar with. With all your experience dealing with, you know, tons of sponsors, what are some of the other things that, that people should be asking questions they should ask or things they should look at in the sponsor. And then also, what are some potential red flags? I mean, you already mentioned one, right? It's yeah. when AJ goes and does a, a multifamily deal. You're like, hey, hold right. on a second. So right. what are some of the other like red flags and then things that you yeah. should be asking? Another question I would be asking is what's the level of experience in that particular marketplace, right? Because again, this person might be really an expert in the in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, market. And this happens to be something in Orlando, Florida or something. So do they have the team, you know, and the connections and the relationships in that particular market? So that's something I would be asking about. Uh, I'd be asking about, you know, what's the plan B? What happens if the sponsor gets hit by a bus? Like if, if you're if you're a one man show or a one woman show and you get, you know, have a, um, a medical emergency or you're, you're out of commission for six or 12 months, A, who is going to be the replacement person that's going to step in? And B, is the investment structured so there's actually capital or f fees that are running around that actually get to support that new person? Because one of the mistakes I see sometimes from new syndicators, which affect LPs, is that they just say, oh, it's my first deal. I'm not going to charge any fees. I'm just going to do this so that, you know, I want to make sure the investors get the best deal they can. 
And they don't have anything in their provisions where if I get hit by a bus or I'm sick or I'm out on disability and I have to go bring another person in, how are they going to get paid? Because there's no money in there. There's no fees to kind of have the, the thing. So that's another thing I would do. Alignment for me is a huge thing. Like, again, understanding what you're trying to accomplish and, again, making sure that the sponsor, whatever their uh, investment thesis or whatever that is, not that they're right or wrong, just making sure the two of you are aligned in that. So, again, in my earlier point, if you're if you're a cash flow conservative, you know, investor, you may be you're a retiree and you really need that income and you're going to rely on the cash flow. Well, you don't, don't start investing or make sure you understand that the sponsor, that's what they're doing too, versus, you know, doing a development deal in an opportunity zone. That's not going to tr- produce any capital for two or three years. And they're going to hold it for, you know, 10 or 15. Um, so those are kind of some of the other uh, questions. And of course, once you get to the actual, you know, deal itself, or, or, or when you're actually looking at a particular project is, is asking questions, uh, you know, for example, like one of the questions I like to know is just, again, it kind of goes to alignment, but, you know, does the, does the sponsor have any of their own capital at risk or is the loan such a loan product that they really have uh, skin in the game? Because one of the things that happens is a lot of folks like to charge all their fees up front. They're kind of fee heavy on the front end. Nothing wrong with fees in general, but you can charge them on the front end in the middle end or the back end. And if they start charging too many fees on the front end, then there's less of an incentive. You know, again, you may think it sounds amazing that you're getting 90% of the profits and the, and the sponsor's only taking 10, which is, which is kind of a lot more than usual. But then think about it from the sponsor's point of view. They have little incentive to go put this thing till the end, and they're going to be more concerned about going to go get the next deal so they can get more fees, more acquisition fees. And so the fee structure is important. Uh, I'm not here to tell you that the sponsor shouldn't get any fees because they should for the reason I just mentioned about what if something even happens. But you want to incentivize the sponsor. You want to incentivize the sponsor to get up every morning and work as hard as they can for your deal. So A, make sure they're compensated, and B, make sure that the, the compensation really is aligned with your interest, which is you know, making sure you get to the, to the back end of the investment. That, that's great stuff. You know, not only the, the backup plan for, you know, if the sponsor gets hit by the bus, but also digging in and saying, making sure that they have capital to pay whoever replaces them. And then also just, you know, we're always so concerned. What are the fees? What are the fees? And, you know, we understand that the operator needs to be compensated, but we're always trying to say, well, we, just, we don't want them to have very much fee, but you want them to have some, as you said. And, and it's just a different perspective. You want to make sure that you're protecting your investment. So you want an adequately paid operator. So that's fantastic can I, stuff. Can I add one more actually that's actually yeah. become more and more important in this in today's environment? And that is what is the experience level of, of what we call asset managing? Because what's happened, as you probably know, Jim, over the last several years, people have been crushing it in real estate. A lot of LPs have been making a lot of money. A lot of sponsors have been making a lot of money. But it's not because of the quality of the execution on the property. It's primarily due to the fact that the property is just skyrocketed in value, right? With these cap rates that dictate the value of our properties, the cap rates have been collapsing for the for, for as long as I can remember. And so even if you had a business plan, right? You could be a sponsor. You have a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise rates. I'm going to raise thing. And then I'm going to do this, that, the other. They could have completely failed at that, which a lot of did, did actually did not really execute on the business plan. But because the property went up 20%, then it kind of masked whatever, you know, inadequacies the sponsors had on the asset management side. That's no longer the true truth today, as you know. The cap rates have, have gone up. Properties are down anywhere from 20 to 30% these days. And so if you're not able to actually execute on the business plan, those failures are going to be exposed because you're not going to get bailed out by cap rate compression or, you know, interest rates suddenly, suddenly being close to zero so that you can refinance out it. So, so pay particular attention to what's their track record on actually doing what they're going to do. Have they been able to increase occupancy? Have they been able to increase rents? Have they been able to do in the past what they're claiming to be uh, trying to do today? 
I, I absolutely love that because what you're saying is don't just look at the IRR or the re, you know return on capital or whatever those measurements were because you know I used to own a multifamily building and I was a terrible asset manager right but if you look at my results I I kicked butt right I I doubled the value of the property and by I I mean the luck of the market <laughs> but I did not manage the property well right. so yeah. you're just I mean that you're preaching it, man that's fantastic it's, it's no different stuff. Than the stock, remember the stock market when it was going through the roof you you could literally throw a dart at, at the stock thing and pick a stock and you would be making money that doesn't mean you're a quality stock picker it just means you're throwing a, the dart at the wall and it's going up today you can't throw the dart at the wall you've actually got to do the work yeah, I love that. that. That's great stuff. So now I want to dig into the part that I'm honestly a little bit dreading because I am not good at the uh, <laughs> digging into the weeds on documents. But the, the PPM, right? It's the private placement memorandum. Do I need to read the whole thing? Um, what are the, so I guess the question is, do I need to read it? And if I do, yes or no. And then what are three or four main things I need to look for to make sure they're there? And then maybe some red flags. Like if I see yeah. this, I go, no way. Yeah, you definitely need to read, especially if it's the first time you're doing a deal with a particular sponsor. Cause, cause maybe, you know, maybe this is your seventh deal. You're starting to see the same things over and over again. And so it's, it's somewhat similar. But if it's the first time you do it, you absolutely need to do it. What, what the, just to make sure the LPs, I didn't, I don't want to leave anybody behind. As you mentioned, the private place memorandum, it's a disc, it's primarily meant to be a disclosure document. It's a document where you disclose all of the risks of how the investment can go wrong, all the conflicts of interest that you have, all that kind of stuff. I like to compare it with that medical consent form. Those of you who had surgery before, or I always give the, 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 the story of my teeth. I have horrible teeth. I've had oral surgery a numerous amount of times. And every time I go to get like my, my teeth pulled or whatever with a surgeon, I get that yellow sheet and say, look, you're going under this procedure. Uh, there are some side effects. You could have some bleeding. You could have an infection. You could die from this procedure. I mean, whatever. And then you, you review that. You sign off. The doctor signs off and boom, you're off to the procedure. That's what this PPM is meant to do. It's just meant to disclose all of the risks so that you as the LP can go into this investment with your eyes wide open, having all the information you need, good and bad, so that then you can sit back and make an intelligent decision as to whether this is a good investment for you or not. So the purpose of the PPM is strictly disclosure. And so you want to be looking for things like the, again, you're trying to figure out the experience and, and the track rate of the sponsor. That should be in those documents. So there's going to be a section in there and it might be straight in the PPM or sometimes one of the, you know, the PPM really has addendums or attachments or exhibits. One of those is really the business plan. And so a lot of times this information might be in the, in the business plan, but the information about the sponsor, their track record, uh, you want to read the fine print because, you know, especially on the risk, there's a section, there's a section in the PPM called the risk factors, right? That's probably where I would really focus on. Now, a lot of it is kind of boilerplate and, you know, whatever, that's fine. Hey, look, there's no, we're trying to raise rents. We, you know, who knows the, the, we could go in a recession and we could lose all money. There's those, those risks, which, okay, after a while, you can probably gloss over there. But if there's anything that the sponsor needs to disclose, which is material, which means it would affect an investor's decision as to whether invest or not, that's where it's going to be. So for example, if somebody's filed for bankruptcy, you know, over the last 10 years or so, if somebody's been convicted, what if you've been convicted of some crime that you've been embezzlement or something, that's going to be contained in there. So you don't want to be in a situation where they've, they've had to disclose that because it's one of the requirements and you decided not to read it and therefore weren't aware that this person has had some issues in the past and has lost money for investors in the past. So the risk factors, I think, is really from that, from the disclosure standpoint is something I, I would want to look at. And then the other one is the conflict of, there's a provision in there called conflicts of interest. Now, I would argue that most sponsors have general conflicts of interest because they're buying different properties in different, uh, in the, maybe in the same marketplace. So, you know, where am I going to allocate resources? If, you know, if a renter comes in, am I going to put them in this property or that property? I mean, there's, there's those general ones. 
But there might be other substantial um, conflicts of interest that if you knew about it, you'd be like, hey, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe they're buying the property from themselves. Like it's their property and they're raising money to buy it out. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's there's a level of like, OK, well, you know, is this really the right price? Is You know, you can start paying attention to more, more of the things. So I think the risk factors is one I would look at. Um, and then the conflicts of interest, generally speaking. Right. Obviously, the PPM is going to then disclose what I would like to, to know the most is the compensation side, right? So that's probably the biggest disclosure that honestly the regulators like to look at because they they want to make sure that the sponsor is disclosing all of the ways they're getting paid. And there's direct ways and there's indirect ways. Like for example, there's nothing wrong with the sponsor being a real estate broker and actually getting a commission on the sale. So they're selling this multifamily bill, they're raising money for it, they do the transaction. In addition, their brokerage firm gets the 6% or the 3% commission. Nothing wrong with that, but it's going to be disclosed. And so you want to look at the compensation thing, making sure everything's disclosed, because if it's not, that's a red flag. Although I'll tell you what my number one red flag is, though, Jim. My number one red flag is when they're supposed to have a PPM and they don't have one. Because that just means that the sponsor is cutting corners, right? And they'll come up with an excuse, and it's usually an invalid excuse, as to why one isn't needed. Oh, it's just friends and family. or Oh, it's just, you know, it's less than this amount of money. None of that is, is true. And so I've had a couple of opportunities to review deals for other clients. This is actually back in the day. I don't do this anymore. Where they would come to me and say, hey, you know, can you review the deal for me? I just want to make sure it's good. And, and a couple of times they didn't have a PPM. Uh, and the excuse was, well, they didn't need one. And I could quickly tell that one was required by law. And then I remember the business plan was also kind of like a templated, like it was almost like a, a, um, um, a, basically a template PPM. Anyway, long story short, fast forward two years, both of those deals ended up having some fraudulent component to it. Because think of it this way, if they're cutting corners, which is the only reason they would do that to save a couple bucks from the compliance side, if they're cutting corners in the PPM, number one, they're not disclosing to you all the important information. But number two, if they're cutting corners there, you know, where else are they cutting corners? So, so number one, making sure that there is a PPM when there's one required, and I can talk about when one is required or not. And then two, which is also important, is making sure that all the documents match, right? Like whatever they're re rep represented in orally, making sure that's in the PPM, whatever they're disclosing, hey, there's a preferred return, or it's an 80-20 split, or it's there, or I'm charging these fees, that's all going to be in the PPM. But there's also going to be the operating agreement, which we'll talk to about in a second. But you want to make sure those two match as well, because if they don't match, the operating agreement is actually the one that's going to govern. So if they tell you the sponsors that you're going to get a 7% a pref and that language is missing, uh, it's in the PPM, but it's missing the operating agreement. The operating agreement is going to, is going to be the one that actually governs and there isn't going to be no prep, pref unless it's amended. Okay, that well, was that, that was... <laughs> no, that was fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I obviously need to do a better job of reading them. I, I do go through them and I have certain points that, that I concentrate on. And some of those are the ones you were talking about and others are not. I really focus on the compensation part and make sure that it matches not only the operating agreement, but also the pitch deck that they're sending in, right? Yep. It has to match the marketing material. And the, so that, and the waterfalls too, like especially these days, I think it's gotten yes. less and less, but back in, you know, a couple of years ago, the waterfall, meaning, you know, the first, you know, you get the 7% pref and then after after that, you know, we're going to split it, you know, this way. And then after a certain hurdle, we're going to split it a different way. And then after there was all these little sort of what we call them a waterfall that also pay really close attention to that, because that may also dictate not only, you know, what your distributions look like at the time, but it really will affect your distribution on the back end, like how they categorize certain payments to you, for example, part of the waterfall discussion, but you know, when they give you, let's say you invest a hundred thousand dollars into a deal, right? And in the first year they give you 10,000, 
back, right? Is that profit? Are they counting that as profit? Are they saying, look, you invested a hundred grand, here's $10,000. So it's a 10% return, cash on cash return. And then at the end of the deal, I'm going to give you back the hundred grand or which is a lot, what a lot of people do is we're going to categorize that $10,000 as a return of capital, meaning I'm just going to reduce your $100,000 down to 90. And the reason that's important is because on the back end, instead of me having to return all of your money, which is the hundred grand, I may only have to return 60 grand before we start doing whatever splits we're going to be starting doing. So the, the waterfall is another really critical component of a PPM and an operating agreement. And I have it in, in my docs. It's it's everywhere. Like it's in the PPM and then it's also an exhibit to the opera. I mean, it's, it's at least three different places. So I have to also be clear, like, careful to make sure the language matches in all three different places. Because literally one word, literally a word, for example, when it says of capital, return of capital versus return on capital are a world of difference. And so one yeah. of the reasons I, I would also recommend maybe sending a, a, the operating agreement to your CPA to, to, to get another set of eyes on it just to make sure from a tax perspective it makes sense. Yeah, and you know, the, the return of versus return on capital is, is also very confusing because then, you know, you read the PPM and, and you read the operating agreement and then you get into the deal and they send you your first distribution and on the portal, it says return of capital. And they say, no, 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 the portal's wrong. It's really return on capital. And so you really don't even know sometimes. And you ask the operator, and, and, and I've been in times where they're confused. They're not even sure if it's return on capital, return of capital, because of the way it goes into their portal. So it's really confusing. And, and not only that, it's actually, you know, there's a lot of, uh, I don't want to say, I want to say illegal, but that seems like a non-compliance on their part, because, you, you know, when you're talking about telling people, like, for example, if it's a return of capital, so I'm giving your money back, I can't represent to you that you're going to be getting a 10% cash on cash return because that's a miss, that's a misdisclosure. It's not 10% cash on cash. It's you're giving me my money back. So if you're right. going to go that route, you've got to, you can't call it cash on cash. You'd have to call it like a cash distribution or, or, or some other term, but you've got to be very, very clear. And again, that's going to be in the PPM. It's got to be clear in the PPM how that return to you is going to be categorized and that it help it, that affects you today meaning when you get the distribution for tax purposes but it's also going to affect when you look at the waterfall at distribution because the first thing that has to happen for investors is all of their money has to be returned to them to make them whole before you start doing whatever splits and obviously if they only have to return half of your money because they've been returning the money you know for the first 5 or 6 years and so at the end they only have to give you $50,000 instead of $100,000 before the actual distribution that does make a big difference on on all the numbers yeah, absolutely. And, and I usually, um, I like to send an email and get it in writing, whether they're saying return of, return yeah. on, and make sure it matches everything beforehand so that when, when I start getting distributions, I can say, well, look, here's what you said. This isn't what you said. So I, that's great that's advice. That's a great practice. That's a good best practice to make sure you just get something in email, you know, even just a negative consent, meaning, hey, here's what I understand it saying. Can you confirm yes or no? Yeah, exactly. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invests on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us. 
slash LFI. This is Chad Ackerman, the host of the LFI Spotlight podcast. As part of our growth here at Left Field Investors, the LFI Spotlight is moving to its own podcast feed. So if you'd like to continue to hear stories, tips, and receive advice, be sure to subscribe to the LFI Spotlight podcast today. We'll see you in the spotlight. So th- now I want to move on to, to the operating agreement. You, you, you mentioned the operating agreement governs the entire situation, right? So if the operating agreement says something, the PPM says something different, operating agreement wins. So what should we be looking for in the operating agreement? Yeah, I love the quote. I think Gary Keller said at one point that uh, it's really a, uh, uh, it's not really an operating agreement. It's an operating disagreement, meaning you only really look <laughs> at it when there's like confusion or, dis- you know, so if you people always ask me about questions like, hey, what what if this happens? What do I have to do that? All of that, all of those rules that govern the syndication are going to be contained in that operating agreement. So some of the things I would look at again. Waterfall will definitely be on there. So if they're, if they're promising a preferred return or whatever the splits are, 80, 20, 75, 25, when that gets paid, return of capital versus return on capital, that's going to be found in the operating agreement. I will also focus on the compensation side. You know, I'm pretty conservative. So when it comes to compensation, you're going to find almost repetitive for me. You're going to see it like eight different times in the office. I just want to make sure everybody understands these are all the ways I'm getting paid directly or even indirectly. Even if my brother-in-law is getting compensation over there, I'm going to, I'm going to disclose that. Um, the other one, especially these days, and this is probably after the fact, unfortunately, but if you are hit with a cash call, which more and more cash calls are becoming more the norm because as we know, you know, some of the projects are struggling, especially if you bought it, you know, at the peak a couple of years ago and your debt needs to get re, there's a lot of cash calls going on these days. And so everybody calls me and says, Hey, I need to do a cash call. You know, what do I do or what's the procedure for that? That's going to be found in the operating agreement. So there should be a section called capital contributions or additional capital contributions. And that's also critical to understand because are you legally required to give more money if you asked, uh, and, and if you are, what, or if you don't contribute, what are the consequences? Are you going to get diluted? Is, uh, is somebody else going to do it on your behalf and charge you kind of an obscene interest rate, almost giving you a loan for it? Like all those, and again, there's probably a, a million ways how to do cash calls, but that's all going to be contained in that particular provision. Um, also, you know, how, obviously the, the big one probably for an LP is, is if you don't like the way things are going, you know, what are the procedures to remove a particular manager, right? If somebody's really running this deal to the ground, you're not happy with what they're doing. You know, how do I remove a manager? That would be something to look at, uh, in the operating agreement. Um, and then again, the, again, for most people, I think it's, it's, it's the, uh, the return profile that's going to be in there. But, uh, really, I think what from an investor that, again, that's just the, the, the legal, the, I think for, for an investor, the PPM, is what I would focus on. And for me, the business plan is kind of, all of these really are part of the PPM. I think of the PPM, uh, I call them offering docs because I have a PPM and then have five exhibits, right? So exhibit one would be the operating agreement. Exhibit two would be a subscription agreement. Exhibit three would be a questionnaire to keep track. Uh, And then number four would be a business plan. But uh, the business plan is also really where you're getting sort of, you know, what exactly is the sponsor going to do with this asset? Are they going to, you know, increase the rents? They're going to refinance, you know, all that stuff uh, and the pro forma and everything that's going to be it technically is part of the PPM, but uh, it's going to be found in the in one of the attachments. And, you know, back to the, the cash call or capital call, if, if it's required in the operating agreement, so, you know, saying, hey, if there's a capital call, you are required to participate. Is that a deal that you would just say, you know what, I'm out? Or is, yeah, is I, that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's very rare because, um, again, people invest, they're limited partners. So people invest $50,000, $100,000, $25,000. And the idea is that I'm not going to be, that's it. That's the most I could lose. That's the whole point of being a limited partner. I don't have the risk of the loan or if the deal goes south or if there's a, a lawsuit. Like the most I can lose in an LP is my initial capital contribution, right? So I've never seen a sponsor say mandatory cash calls. Like if it's a cash call, it's mandatory. However, there are a lot of, I mean, most of them, including mine, have punitive, I would call it punitive uh, consequences if you don't, uh, either you don't, because you can't do the cash call, you don't want to, you think the deal's, you know, I'm throwing good money after bad. Most of the time you will see a dilution, if that's pronounced a dilution of your, uh, of your interest. So you might own 2.3% right. of the deal. There's a cash call. You pass on the cash call. You, at the end of the day, you may end up getting, you know, 2%. And so you might lose uh, some ownership percentage. Or to be honest with you, my favorite is, is honestly when somebody then is able to basically, you know, let, let's say that everybody has to put five grand. I put in five grand for mine, but I also cover another five grand for yours. And then I, it's almost like a loan to you at 18% or 12%. And they put a lien on the shares. So that way, if there's distributions in the future, those distributions go to me first to pay off my loan at this high interest rate until that gets paid off before you start re, you know, reengaging in your, in your distributions, uh, if you fail to do the cash call. So definitely pay attention because even if it's not mandatory, figure out what the consequences are of you not doing a cash call if that day hopefully doesn't arrive, but uh, it may. Yeah, unfortunately, it's arrived for uh, for many yeah. <laughs> on, yeah. on some of these deals, and and yeah. that, then the, the decision is you have to look, relook at the deal and say, as you said, are we throwing good money after bad, or is there an opportunity here? Because we have one operator who who had had some of these issues and has capital calls, and some of the you know they're saying, well, your your capital's gone if we sell right now, and I'm like, well, okay, I don't think I want to give you more capital right, then, right. you know. So those right. are some of the things that people have to think about. Yeah, w one of the thing I was what I was going to point out, which I've already forgotten, so let's 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 keep going. <laughs> 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 no, no worries. So I, I want to get to the subscription agreement. Um, what what is that? What's the purpose? And and it's just really looking for information about about me, or is that the questionnaire? Well, some people combine a subscription agreement with a questionnaire. We actually separate them out, but the subscription agreement actually isn't super. Um, you know, from a reading perspective, it's not a huge deal, but it is actually the subscription agreement is the document that officially binds you to the investment. So it's a really critical document. Uh, that what's inside the document may not be super, super crazy, but that's where you're going to put, Hey, I'm investing $50,000 in this deal. And here's my name. Here's my information. And that's the document that actually binds you to buying the shares. And it's also the document that's binding me to sell you the share. So really when that subscription agreement is executed by both parties, that contract, that's really when the sale happens. Right. So that's when the actual, and there's a lot of things in the syndication world that are based on the date that the security gets sold. And that's really what that subscription agreement does. Some people, to your point, do include sort of a questionnaire as well, which, which is important for the syndicator because they want to know, number one, most importantly, are you an accredited investor or not? Because they need to keep track of that. Or maybe you're not even eligible if you're not accredited, but they at the very least need to keep track of, uh, of how many, um, uh, you know, how many non-accredited investors they have. And then they also need to keep track and make sure that you're sophisticated because if you're non-accredited, there are some sophistication requirements. So they need to make sure they're putting stuff in there. You're checking the box, you know, uh, assuring the sponsor that yes, you've got some experience or you're sophisticated or you're working with somebody who's sophisticated. But at the end of the day, it's basically a document that tells everyone that's the legal document document that binds you, all the information that you're going to need for your tax, you know, your K, for your K-1, so your social security number, your address, all that kind of stuff goes in the subscription agreement. But uh, it's not a super exciting document. 
Okay, and and that that's a good transition here. Uh, I did solicit some questions from our uh, from our infielders, our members, because uh, I, I t- told them we were going to have a conversation with you. And yeah. one of them was, do LPs need to be concerned about changes to the accredited investor definition? And that's part one. And part two is, is the talk about a a test to become accredited a real thing. Just my opinion, which doesn't matter, but my opinion is if you're a member of a community like Left Field Investors or any other community, that should be good enough for accreditation, right? Because you know more than some Yahoo with $10 million to waste. That's my opinion. But what what do you think about the definition? Is it going to change and, and are we going to get a yeah. test so people can get into it? Yeah. So I put out a lot of content on this. So the test is a, is, is a done deal, right? So so the SEC has already passed a rule that require is going to require a test. The, the problem is they haven't really instituted it yet because the, the there needs to be some people that are credentialed to give the test and they haven't gotten that far. And they're to be honest with you, they're sitting on it. But this rule passed a couple of years ago that they were going to take a test and, and as an option to get accredited. But they've been sitting on their butts so much that now Congress has gotten involved and introduced several pieces of legislation Basically mirroring what the SEC originally said, which is that let's do a test so that, you know, you can show your level of sophistication. That's passed the House already with overwhelming majority. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, it is like 318 to 12. I mean, it's really crazy. It's sitting in the Senate right now, and it's honestly been sitting there since June 2nd or 1st, whenever these, these laws passed. But I fully expect that to pass. But either the SEC is going to get on their butts or get going so that they don't have to worry about Congress to get their rule that they've already passed just instituted. Uh, and if they don't do that, eventually, I think Congress is going to pass the test so that you do have that option. Now, you, there's already a test, by the way, that you can take if you're not an accredited investor. So if you're listening to this and you're not accredited and you're like, darn it, like I really I know a ton and I really want to get involved in some of these deals that I'm not eligible for. You can become an investment advisor right in with your state and now the investment advisors are going are right now considered accredited investors right and irregardless of your income or net worth so i think the easiest one and i and if you remind me jim I'll, i can give you i did a little checklist for someone so if I, i'll just give it to you and you can pass it on but um if this i think series 65 is by far the the easiest path to that not easy but the easiest so you can go study for the exam, pass the series 65, which I, I don't think it's the, the, the hardest thing to do, uh, and then uh, apply with your state, become an investment advisor, and now you would become accredited even today. Uh, and I think the test that's going to come down the pipe is going to be very similar to the series 65 anyway. So if you really okay. want to be accredited right now, do it. Now, the second point, which is... Yeah, go ahead. Well, one question. I'm sorry. The um, because we we've looked into this a little bit at Left Field Investors because we do have non-accredited investors we're trying to help out, and from our understanding, it each operator, each syndicator seems to be handling this differently. Whether they will take just the Series 63 or Series 65, as you passed it, you're good to go. Some of them are requiring that you hang a shingle with a broker, an investment advisor. Is that accurate? That's why Series 65. So if you do a, so there's really three that you, you can do. You can do a Series 7, Series 75, I'm sorry, Series 65 or a Series 82. Those are the three you can get. The Series 65, though, is the only one that you can get a license with your state without having a, uh, a sponsored uh, uh, investment advisor. So if you okay. want to go the Series 7 route, you got to go find an investment advisory firm that's going to sponsor you. With a 65, you can create your own LLC, create your own investment advisor, and sponsor yourself. That's why that's why it's the easiest path, because you don't have to okay. have a sponsoring thing. But you can't just pass the exam. Have it, passing the exam is not enough to make you accredited. You have to pass the exam become licensed in your state and be in good standing with that state. Okay. Okay. Thank you. And then, um, I think you were, you're going to go on to the, um, it's a separate, it's a kind of a separate issue. 
I've been I've been thinking about this a lot, and, I, and, and from some of the stuff I've read with the SEC, I, I see how it it all combines into the same issue. But there, the SEC is looking to amend or change the definition of what an accredited investor is. Uh, right now, it's just a bunch of rumors as to what that number looks like or what they're going to change. There was a Bloomberg article, a famous Bloomberg article that was obviously it was clickbait. I think they said, "Hey, it's going to go to ten million dollars," uh, which yeah. is not really what the article said. But they are looking to update that definition. Uh, they were supposed to do it earlier this year in April. They've kicked it now to October of this year. And my belief, and this is just my, you know, I could be wrong. I couldn't. I think the accredited investor limit is going to increase to match inflation from when it got passed in 1982. So if you do a little quick, and I just use Google, I didn't do any major studying on this, but like, what, <laughs> what is a million dollars in 1982 equivalent to today? And it's about 2.8 or 2.9 million. So I do think they're going to increase that to 3 million. And I think that's what, that's, I think that's why the test that the SEC is on hold is because they, the, the people who are kind of opposed to the test because they want, don't want to make it easy. They, they want to have this increase in the number. So the good news or the bad news is that you may be accredited today. And you won't be accredited a year from now, but you're going to have this alternate path where you can go get accredited under, under a test. So you're going to have those two options, either automatically qualify this way or go take a test and get qualified that way. And, and they won't, um, kick you out of deals that you're already in. If you be, if you're accredited now and you become non-accredited because they changed the rules, you'll be fine. I assume. Correct. I, I can't see a, a scenario where you sometime, you know, you, you, the people call it a grandfathered in. I don't think you're going to, that's not even a grandfathered in. If you're in, because remember the, the regulations and the rules apply at the time of sale. That subscription agreement we talked about. So if you've already signed the subscription, a subscription agreement, you've already bought the shares during a time where you were accredited or not accredited, that's what's going to govern. This is going to govern for future deals. Or if they're looking for additional capital, then that might be an issue. Like if you want to contribute more capital two years mm -hmm. from now, that may be an issue. But if you're already in a deal, I can't fathom a scenario where you, you'd you suddenly become an ineligible or, and you'd have to like, right. I don't know how that would even work. Okay. Another one. Um, what does it mean to be a disregarded entity when investing through an LLC? And what happens if I filled it out wrong three or four years ago, just asking for a friend? So a disregarded entity is when you have a single member LLC. So you create an LLC. It's generally a holding company. So you're, you want it by yourself. So, uh, this is all made up, but let's assume it's Jim. So Jim has an LLC that he owns by himself. He's the only owner. You have the option to have the LLC kind of tax as a disregarded entity, which means for tax purposes, the entity doesn't even exist. So everything, even though it goes to the LLC bank account, the K1, it all ends up in your personal uh, tax return. It's as if the LLC never existed. You could only have a disregarded entity when it's just one person. If it's uh, if there's two people, it's usually a partnership, but it could also be an S-Corp or a C-Corp. There's a couple of ways to do it. So that's what a disregarded entity is. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Um, if I filled out the, the oh, subscription just, agreement just, wrong. Just, just call the sponsors. I mean, it's not a big deal. I mean, look, a lot of times you even change. Like if I took, uh, if I took, uh, ownership in the syndication in a form of an LLC, I may want to change it. I may want to create a different LLC in a different state for asset protection purposes, or maybe I have a, a, a living trust now or an asset. Like there, there are changes. You should be able to just reach out to whoever your contact person and say, Hey, look, I've, I've, I've recategorized. I'm not disregarded anymore. Here's my EIN or here's my new entity that I want to. And then they, they should just change their records so that when they issue the K1s at the end of the year or, or at least probably the beginning of next year, then uh, they'll just have the correct information. It, it shouldn't be a big deal. Well, that, that, that's one, good to know. My, was, you know, I forgot last time what was I was trying to say. That was one of the things I was looking at for the operating agreement, which is making sure what's the mechanism for you to be able to request certain documents 
from the opera, from the LLC, from the sponsors. So if you want to look at the tax returns, if you want to have access to names and numbers of people, that's also going to be something in the operating room that you want to pay attention to. So, cause I've got a lot of people frustrated that they're looking for, you know, uh, financials or they're looking for this or looking for that. And they're just getting stonewalled sometimes by sponsors. Again, that would be something in the operating agreement, mm-hmm. which will mandate how you, how you get access to it, what the process looks for, uh, to get uh, certain documentation. Okay. Perfect. And then talking about investing with an LLC, um, is there a benefit to investing through an LLC versus investing in your own name? Yeah. So, I mean, it's primarily an asset protection thing. So it depends on the state you're in. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll give you some breaking news here. You know, the, the great state of Texas just amended their statutes. And so Texas has now become a really great uh, state. But yeah, I mean, it depends from an, it's just purely an asset protection thing. So it depends on the state where the syndication LLC has been set up. If it's, if it's like a California property, so you invested in a California LLC, which is probably the worst asset protection state. Uh, or if you're invested in Atlanta, uh, Georgia is a pretty terrible asset protection state. Then owning a piece of a Georgia LLC or a California LLC is not a great thing because they can, if, if you get sued, they can take that share from you. Um, and so that's why you want to have another layer of protection where you, you're, you're, you're owning an LLC that's in a really good state, like a, usually a Wyoming or a Nevada or Delaware is what you typically would hear. Now I'm going to add Texas to that, especially if you're a resident of Texas. So you would own a Texas LLC, for example, that would then, uh, uh, invest in the particular thing. It's just, it's for asset protection primarily. Okay. Excellent. Um, so when we're talking to a syndicator, you know, doing the, the, um, the vetting of the operator, like we talked about earlier, what are some tips to know so we can figure out that they're following SEC rules or what questions should we ask to make sure that they are compliant with the SEC? One of the things you could do is there's a SEC website. It's called, I forget what it sounds. It's Edgar, Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. It's the electronic depository something or other, right? <laughs> uh, and every every sponsor is required to file what's called a Form D with the, the, the SEC. And that gets that's a public record and you can search on it in Edgar. So one of the things you can do is you can search not only the current deal, presumably not, maybe you're the first investor and they haven't filed it yet, but certainly if they say, look, we've done seven syndications before, you can get the names of those seven syndications and you can go on the website, on the, on the SEC website just to make sure that that got filed properly. The other one I would definitely ask, because this is going on a lot, it's one of my pet peeves, a little bit self-serving, I understand, but you know, maybe ask who the attorney is. Are they working with a securities attorney? Because a lot of times they're either not working with the securities, they're working for, with some discounted outfit just to save again, save a couple bucks and working with a website or some non-legal person. Or, or if they are working an attorney, they're working with a, an estate planning attorney or some other type of attorney who's not really an expert in the field. You want to make sure you're working with a reputable securities firm, whether it's me or our firm or not. That's another that to me, that's another big red flag if they're not doing that in terms of doing it right. The PPM, you know, anytime you have non-accredited investor, if you're a non-accredited investor yourself, then you absolutely should be provided with a private place memorandum, a PPM. Uh, and if you're accredited and know of other people that are in the deal that are non-accredited and you don't have a PPM, again, that's a huge red flag because that just shows you they're either uh, don't know what they're doing or they do know what they're doing. They're just cutting corners. Excellent. Now, we, we're seeing a lot of operators and, and maybe this this switch happened maybe 18 months ago, it seems like, or two years ago, where a lot of them are going to a fund model versus individual uh, syndicated deals. Yeah. What, what are the what are the pros and cons for the, mostly for the LP? I think I know for the operator, if you do a fund, you get a bunch of cash and go out and buy these deals. But what, what are the pros and cons for the LPs? You know, 
um, one of the pros for the LPs would be diversity. So if you're if you're putting if a sponsor is putting down together a fund, that means they're going to be putting multiple properties in that fund, and so you get the benefit of diversity. You're not invested in just one deal; you're invested in four or five or six or however many deals are in there. So that's that's a benefit uh, to the investor. They're also just looking at one set of docs. Uh, it's generally a blind what we call a blind pool, so you're not getting really detailed information about each property. But the sponsor would say, "Hey, we're raising a bunch of money to go buy mobile home parks in you know Texas and Oklahoma or whatever." So you're, you're, you're investing one time. You have to do the due diligence ones. You got to be comfortable with the operator ones. But then once you do it, every time they go buy an asset, they're not coming for you for more, you know, for, for more documents, for more money. You, you just gave them that initial investment. I think those are the two big benefits for, for, for the investors. I think the main benefits are really for the sponsor side. Um, and, and there's a, a bunch of different reasons why, why that helps the sponsor. But from the LP side, I think it's just, it's diversity is probably the best one that I could, that I can think of. Okay. And another question here from our infield community. Um, what's one legal topic that's affecting LPs that, that isn't really talked about, if you can think of one? I, that's kind of putting you on the spot. But is, is there something that, uh, that people should know that maybe we don't as LPs? Um. You know, on the syndication side, just well, they probably just just making obviously the disclosure that the, that the sponsor does have the obligation to do to do um, to do things. I think the one thing that they could that, that I think is helpful for sponsor uh, for LPs is that the if they're if the sponsor isn't following the rules, and this helps if things aren't going right, and you realize that they cut corners, and if the sponsor doesn't follow the securities laws, then your remedy is getting your money back plus interest. So use that a little bit as leverage. Something I used that as leverage before within the two examples I gave you before when these sponsors end up doing stuff. I said, look, you can go to them and say, look, I know you didn't do things right. I want my money back plus interest. Or I just want my money back. Otherwise, I'm picking up the phone. I'm calling the SEC because, you know, this is something that you didn't comply fully with securities laws. And then, number one, that's a huge leverage point for you because the last thing a sponsor wants is a call, you know, is an SEC investigation or a regulator uh, thing. But again, that's what I always teach my clients is that if you don't follow the rules, then you're essentially guaranteeing the investor's money because that you're going to have to give all of even if it wasn't your fault, the market crash or whatever, you're going to have to give all the money, the investor's money back plus interest. And so you're essentially guaranteeing their money. Now, the, there's a good chance they won't have the money, but you know, if, if they're if they're a sponsor that's, that's done a lot of different deals, they may. But that's a good leverage point to have in the back of the mind. If you feel like they're violating securities laws, that might be some leverage that the LPs can use to uh, to, to to make a demand for their money back. Otherwise, they'll they'll become a squeaky wheel. Uh, that that that's great. That's great information. Um, the last question from from the community is. Who is better at picking quality wine, you or Jay Scott? Oh, I've taught Jay everything he knows. I mean, he he pretends to be a <laughs> wine expert, a wine connoisseur, but I'm 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 pretty sure everything he knows about wine has been has been uh, taught by me. Great question, though. That's. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. So our, our last question is, um, what's a great podcast that you listen to? You cannot say drunk real estate. That's already going in the show notes. That is a fantastic podcast. And if you're listening to this and you're not listening to drunk real estate, you're missing out. But what's what's a podcast you like to listen to? One of the newer ones that I'm listening to, I'm a big, just like Jay is, huge into macroeconomics. And I'm a big, uh, I follow a lot, a gentleman by the name of Brent Johnson. He's got something called the milkshake theory. And if you haven't heard about the milkshake theory, please Google it and get your mind around it. He just started a podcast not too recently ago and it's called I'm, I'm gonna mess it up but i think it's called milkshake markets and madness or, or some combination of those three and it's like it comes out twice a week i've really been enjoying that podcast it's got not you know very little to do with real estate but it has to do with macro which obviously does affect real estate whether you're an lp or a sponsor or somebody like me who, who helps on the compliance side 
Excellent. I'm definitely going to check that one out. And then lastly, if listeners wanted to get in touch with you or, or learn, learn more about what you're doing, uh, what's the best way to do that? Uh, best way is just to go to my website, which is premierlawgroup.net, N-E-T. I don't have the com yet. So it's premierlawgroup.net and there's a contact button and we can uh, get, get connected that way. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mauricio. This has been fascinating. This is just so much information. This is one of those podcasts that I will listen back a couple of times to make sure that I've gotten all the details. So thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. No, thanks for having me, Jim. It was uh, my pleasure. Visor provides investors with a secure platform that displays a comprehensive view of all of their holdings on a single holistic dashboard from real estate syndications to private equity, crypto, to traditional investments with AI-driven, unbiased, honest insights to maximize return. Visor is your one place to rule them all. Automating performance tracking, projecting future cash flow, analyzing all your financial documents and much more in one powerful solution, making it easy to follow the money. Sign up for a free 30-day trial now at visor.co. I really enjoyed the conversation with Mauricio. Just fascinating. He has so much knowledge. Uh, but, you know, a couple of things that I picked out of there, you know, obviously do your due diligence is one thing he was talking about, but really do your due diligence on the operator and before you send the wire. As he said, you know, it's passive investing, but we're active before we send the wire. Once we send the wire, there isn't much we could do. Now, he talked about a few things, um, remedies that you might have, but you got to do your due diligence beforehand. And one of the things that really I, I'd thought of a little bit before, you know, what's the plan B? What happens if the operator gets hit by a bus? Who's the backup person? So I, I had thought about that, but I probably don't ask that question enough. What I hadn't thought about is, do they have something set up so that person can actually get paid? So you probably do want some fee structure set up so that they will have money coming in that they can pay a replacement in case something happens to the operator. So just something to look at that I hadn't really thought about before. And then the business plan. When you're looking at someone with experience, have they executed the business plan? That doesn't mean, hey, they, they said they were gonna give you an 18% IRR and they gave you 30. Great, you know, I could have done that and I was a horrible asset manager as I said, but did they actually do the things they said they were gonna do to accomplish that IRR or did they get rescued by the market? And for those answers, you gotta dig a little bit deeper. So I just love that stuff. And then the PPM, he says, read it. Okay. Yeah. I, I skim it. I suppose I should, should read it. So that's something that I'm going to try to do a better job at. And I think I say that every time I talk to an attorney, I'm going to try to do a better job reading the PPM, but man, it's hard, but focus on the risk factors, focus on the disclosures, focus on the compensation. Those are things that I do focus on. And I'm going to continue to dig deeper on those things. And then make sure the operating agreement matches what the PPM says, and that matches the marketing materials you're getting. Those are critical that all those match and that you're okay with all of those. And then as he said, you know, the operating agreement is what's going to govern if there's a conflict between the operating agreement and any of those other documents. So you really make sure that they agree and then you won't get into trouble there. And then finally, you know, I just want to comment again on the Drunk Real Estate Podcast. It's really interesting. They really talk about real estate, but really a lot of that macroeconomic talk that that um, he said he's interested in and, and so is Jay Scott and the others. So really, uh, really great podcast. I recommend that you uh, that you run over and listen to it. So again, next time I'm going to have Mauricio on, you know, I want to talk more about the economy and, and things like that because I'm learning that he has a breadth of, of knowledge there. But man, he certainly uh, 
he certainly came through on all the um, and all the lawyer stuff. So really appreciate him being on the show, and we'll definitely get him on again. So that's it for this time. We'll see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in the left field with us today. If you are interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestor.com and click the subscribe button to join our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you really enjoyed the show, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the podcast would be appreciated. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.